The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Or write to Dean Bible Ministries Incorporated. That's at address 5868 Westheimer. W-E-S-T-H-E-I-M-E-R, number 461, Houston, Texas, 77057. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. There we go. Okay, well, we have a couple of guest pastors here tonight. Uh, where do we go? Uh, Mike Smith, where do you go, Mike? Here's Mike Smith down here, pastor of Country Bible Church in Brenham. And then just down the row from him is Typhoid Mary. Uh, <laughs> uh, Reverend John Height, Master Sergeant, carrier of obnoxious stomach flu viruses, infecting your pastor with them. So, you know, I don't know how you feel about that. Don't let him get out of the door safe. We were all at the uh, pre-trib conference this last week, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. John wanted to be an invincible macho pastor, so he sat next to me all day Monday morning shivering. And then he decided to go to bed with the flu bug, and so the next morning I woke up with it. I'm just giving him a hard time. <laughs> he could take it. But, you know, it's, it's really a great time to go to that conference. And uh, Dick Munson was up there as well, and Connie and Lisa and uh, a couple of others. And it was a great time. We just had a, uh, a tremendous conference. And it's always good to go and hear men who are scholars and specialists in specific areas and have spent a year or maybe more. Some of these men, for example, uh, Mark Hitchcock gave a paper on the Gog and Magog invasion of Ezekiel 38 and 39 uh, Wednesday morning, and I managed to drag myself down and listen to the last half hour of it. And that was, uh, I think, I may be wrong here, but I think that was a result of his doctoral dissertation, which he wrote on the subject. So this is material that gets boiled down by men who've spent uh, years studying on specific areas of specialty, and it's extremely helpful, even if you don't, necessarily agree with a man's position or his conclusions just to have access to the wealth of research that they've boiled down into a 30 or 40 page paper is of tremendous value for uh, for the other pastors and the other men and then the speaker they had at the banquet on uh, Monday night actually they had two Dr. Arnold Fruchtenbaum who many of you know gave his testimony which is quite an interesting testimony because uh, Arnold was born in Siberia, which, as he said, that accounts for part of his accent. And, And his parents were Polish. They had escaped. His father had escaped Poland just ahead of the Nazi invasion in 1939, and that accounts for another part of his accent. And then they got out of Siberia and made it to Germany after the war, which accounts, and that's a long story and fascinating and they were in Germany in in displaced persons camps for three or four years and that's another part of his accent then he was in Brooklyn for a while and that's another part of his accent 
Then he went to Dallas Theological Seminary. He picked up some little Texas in there somewhere, which accounts for... So uh, it, it's a uh, you know, Polish, Yiddish, Russian, German, Brooklyn, Texas accent. And it's very difficult for a lot of folks to understand. You sort of have to work on adjusting your hearing about every five seconds until you finally kind of catch what he's, what he's getting at. But it was fascinating because when he was 13 years old, no, not 13 yet, 12, just about a month before his bar mitzvah, two months before the wife of a Lutheran pastor led him to the Lord. The soil had been prepared through various missionaries with the American Board of Missions to the Jews and some literature. And that lady who now lives in Plano, Texas, and was present at the banquet. And then, so we had one speaker who was a born-again Jew, and the uh, main speaker was Dr. Ergen Kanner, who is a born-again Muslim. His father was a Turkish immigrant, came to Detroit, and then through a high school uh, boy who was uh, went to a small Baptist church in Detroit, made it his goal in life is Canner's got a great sense of humor so you know he's trying to earn a merit badge or he was getting brownie points or whatever it was but his goal in life was to get me saved and so he finally managed to drag me to church and after about the second or third time at church before the pastor even uh, got to the invitation I was walking the aisle and saying I want to be saved now and the pastor's like, wait a minute, wait a minute, you got to wait till the end of the service to come forward, no, 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 I want to get do it now <laughs> So uh, he was, uh, he's a very forceful, dynamic speaker, and he doesn't back off of anything. He's, his life is threatened continuously. His family's been threatened. He's had to move several times, change his phone number every two or three months, things like that. He's now the dean of the seminary at Liberty University. And he and his brother, I think three of the four boys, if not all four of them, became believers and were instantly kicked out of the home. So uh, two of them have their doctorates in theology, one in systematics, one in historical theology, and they have written a number of books on apologetics and Christians dealing with non-Christian religions, specifically Islam, and they don't hold back. They are very forceful in what they say. They don't know the meaning of politically correct, and they, uh, he really lays it out there, and I'm trying to get him scheduled to be a co-speaker at our March, I mean our May prophecy conference with Tommy, and if that doesn't work, then I'm just going to get him to come in whenever his first convenient time is, because he is uh, he, he he's the kind of speaker that you could have just taken all the other speakers off the schedule, and we could have just listened to him for three days, and his his knowledge of Islam, his knowledge of what's actually going on in the world, his knowledge of the scriptures in conjunction with that is, is encyclopedic. So it's, uh, it's great to have speakers like that. Well, before we get started this evening, we need to make sure we're in fellowship. We need to go to the Lord in prayer. So let's have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9, and maybe the heat will kick in after a little bit and we'll warm up. And uh, I'll, then uh, after a few moments of silent prayer, I'll pray. Let's pray.
Father, we do thank you for this time to gather together. We thank you for your grace, your goodness, your kindness. We thank you for the gift of salvation that Jesus Christ died on the cross, paid the penalty in full for our sins, and that in him we are blessed with every uh, spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. Father, we thank you for the gift of your word, your complete finished revelation, and we pray that we would be willing to listen to your word, that we would be teachable in genuine humility, grace-oriented, and that God the Holy Spirit would use the things that we study to challenge us, motivate us, and produce spiritual advance in our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're in Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4 is part of this second major section in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 4 is the part of the conclusion, as I've stated before, and I say this so much, it's like the beginning of every tape, I'm sure, that the writer of Hebrews writes this message with five major points, each ending with an exhortation or challenge or application in which there is a serious warning to pay attention to certain things related to the Christian life, not to take lightly what is being said in the Word. This section began back in 2.5 and extends down through the end of chapter 4. From 3.7 on through 4 through the end of chapter 4, we have our warning section, our exhortation or, or challenge, application, and warning. And it is based upon a quote from Psalm 95, verses 7 through 11, that is based upon the events that occurred at Israel at Kadesh Barnea, where Israel had the opportunity to go into the land, go into the land that God had promised them, and they failed to enter the land because they failed to trust God. They followed the uh, human viewpoint advice of ten of the spies who said, we just can't do it, there's too many walled cities, there's too many people, they're giants, we can't do it, and they did not trust God as, as uh, Joshua and Caleb did. And so God, after this whole series of events of disobedience, which we have studied, finally lowered the boom and said, you're just not going to enter the land. You're all going to die in the wilderness except for Caleb and Joshua. And you have now forfeited your right to enter into my rest, a technical term for the promised land. So there are three key ideas that we studied and developed in 3, 7 to 19. These are foundational to really understanding the thrust of this exhortation. And since we've spent so much time studying those in detail, it allows us to move a little faster in chapter 4 because it develops the argument. But now that we've done the, the homework necessary to study the significance of the technical terms and, and the background and all of that information, we can, we can move through the main challenge in verses 1 through 10 fairly rapidly. But we have to remind ourselves of three points. First of all, the focus of the writer in this section is on future rewards for believers. It's very important to understand that. He's focusing on the future, not on the present. And I want to show you why we say that. First of all, this comes from our understanding of Hebrews 1.14, the last verse in Hebrews 1.14 where he says, Are they not all, that is, angels, ministering spirits, sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? 
And that word in salvation is the word soteria. Soteria. Now, when you and I talk about salvation, we think of justification. Remember, justification is what happens at the instant that we put our faith alone in Jesus Christ. At that instant, God the Father imputes to you the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. He looks at you in possession of, covered over by, the perfect righteousness of Christ and declares you to be just before His justice. And because you possess the perfect righteousness of Christ, God pronounced you justified. And so the technical term that Paul uses in Romans for this is justification by faith alone. Now, modern Americans, modern evangelicals, have taken the word salvation to be the equivalent of justification. But that is very unusual in Scripture. The word group sozo, the root verb, simply means to be delivered. So it can mean to be delivered from a physical malady, and then it has the idea of being healed. It can have the idea of being delivered from a tragedy. It can have the idea of being rescued from danger. Or it can have the idea when it is applied to uh, eternal condemnation of being rescued from eternal condemnation. And that's the way in which we use it. But the way the noun is used by the Apostle Paul, by James, and by the writer of Hebrews is not to refer to what we talk about as phase one justification, but the word soteria, meaning salvation or deliverance, usually has a future orientation. And you have to look at the context to see what, when that future event occurs. And in the context of Hebrews 1.14, I pointed out that inheritance comes at the judgment seat of Christ. So therefore, the focus of soteria in Hebrews 1.14 relates to our deliverance and, uh, and final glorification and appearance before the judgment seat of Christ. When we understand the word in Hebrews 1.14 to have that future meaning, then in Hebrews 2.3, which is in the middle of the application or exhortation of that first chapter, we read, How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Now that's a phrase that many of us have heard most of our lives to refer to justification. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, that is, neglect the offer of the gospel, neglect trusting Christ as our Savior? But that's not what it is saying in context. If salvation in context isn't talking about phase one justification, but phase three glorification or some future fulfillment of the entire process from phase one justification, phase two experiential salvation to phase three glorification, then what the writer of Hebrews is saying is how shall we escape that is loss of reward as we've studied in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 that those who have just wood, hay, and straw before the judgment seat of Christ have it all burned up. So that's what he's talking about. How shall we escape judgment if we neglect so great a salvation? And that has that idea of inheritance and destiny, which at the first began to be spoken of by the Lord. So these two verses together give us the idea that in that first section, the focus is on future destiny, future rewards. Then, uh, I've already covered that. Then in verse 5, Hebrews 2, 5, we see the same future orientation continue. 
as he as the writer moves from the first point to the second point, he says, For he that is God the Father has not put the world to come of which we speak in subjection to the angels. So what's he talking about? The world to come. He's talking about the future millennial kingdom. He's not talking about what's happening in the present church age, but his focus is on that future reign and destiny of Jesus Christ as the Messiah. The second key idea that we have is not only that we're talking future orientation, but we have this background passage and warning based upon the event of the Exodus generation. So we have to decide there, is the Exodus generation primarily a justified, to be consistent with our terminology, a justified generation, that is a generation of believers that are uh, destined for heaven, are they primarily a, a generation of unbelievers? Now, if they're a generation of unbelievers, then the whole thrust of this next section is talking about uh, not gaining salvation. That changes the whole understanding of these next verses and really doesn't work in a number of passages, as we'll see as we go through it. And what we did was we studied statements about belief in the Exodus generation, demonstrating that at least in terms of trusting God in relationship to his messianic provision and ultimate deliverance and, dest- and having a destiny in heaven is provision of a Messiah, they were saved. They trusted God with the provision of the uh, Passover lamb. They trusted God at the Red Sea when they passed through. All of these are pictures of phase one justification. But in terms of their post-salvation life, they were just consistently disobedient, which led finally and ultimately to serious divine discipline, including the forfeiture of all of the blessings that they were promised entering into the promised land. The third factor that pulls everything together is the idea of rest. Rest is the key word used in this passage. And we studied the fact that it has several different meanings, so we had to address that. What is rest? If they're unsaved, then there are those who would say that the rest here means entering into their heavenly destiny. They're not going to the lake of fire, but going to heaven. However, is that really the idea of rest? And we saw that rest has three ideas in the passage, so you have to be careful which rest you're speaking of. The first rest has to do with the creation rest of God, that after he completed his task in six days of creation, after his labors were finished, he ceased from his work. It doesn't mean that he was tired, but that he ceased from his labor and he rested on the seventh day. This is a picture that foreshadowed that the writers of Scripture used to portray the enslavement of Israel in Egypt and their deliverance from slavery, their movement through the wilderness and then entrance into the promised land which was called, which God called my rest. So we saw that the second category of rest here is promised land rest. And then the third category of rest which is foreshadowed by both of the previous two concepts is millennial rest. Millennial rest. Not the rest that comes 
because we are just relaxed in God's provision. While that's a true concept, that's not how the word seems to be used in chapter 4 of Hebrews. Rest has the main idea of cessation from labor or work. Cessation from labor or work, not working or laboring any longer. Now, there are some of you who might be thinking, well, wait a minute, Christ's work was finished on the cross, so we don't work for salvation. His labor was complete, and so we can rest in his finished work. But that's not the focus of the passage, is it? That would be taking an analogy, going to an analogy that has no textual basis. That's not what, you don't find that anywhere in the Scripture. And I mean, in this passage, that's a true statement, that Christ's work is finished, and because his work is finished, we can rest in his finished work. But that's not in this passage. That would be taking, uh, uh, that would be taking a concept that's totally outside the, the structure, the verbiage, the content of Hebrews 4, and bringing it in here. And that's called eisegesis, where you read something into the passage that isn't there. So what we see is that this chapter is focusing, though, that's what, the reason we can say that is that this chapter is focusing on an unfulfilled and thus a future rest. If it was focusing on, since, since the writer is clearly saved in the sense that uh, justified, and his, he views his readers as clearly justified, then if he's talking about resting in the finished work of Christ, that would be a past tense completed action because as I could speak of all of us we have all rested in that sense we have rested in the cross but see that's past tense but he's talking to them as if there's something that is unfulfilled that there is a future rest for example he says in verse 1 that a promise remains of entering the rest well if you're already justified and that's what he's talking about then a promise wouldn't remain it would already be fulfilled so he says in verse 1 that there is a, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear. His main command that, that governs these whole ten verses is that we are to have a healthy sense of fear because we might lose something. And if we're already justified and that's his topic, then we don't have to be afraid of losing anything. So he must be talking about something more than the acquisition of a heavenly citizenship and an eternal destiny. In verse two, or excuse me, in verse six, it says, "Since therefore it remains that some must enter it, and those to whom it was first preached did not enter because of disobedience." So he says, "It remains for some to enter it. It's still future." Verse nine, he says. There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. It's not we're not in we're not there yet. It still remains. There is this future hope, this future destiny. Verse eleven he says, Let us labor therefore to enter the rest. Now, if the rest has to do with entering a heavenly destiny, then we don't labor to get there, do we? Titus 3.5 says it's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saves us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 2.8.9 says, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. Not of works, 
lest any man should boast. So verse 11 of, of Hebrews 4 says, Let us labor, therefore, to enter the rest. So obviously he can't be talking about something related to the finished work, resting in the finished work of Christ on the cross. That is what we would call phase one justification. He's talking about something that goes beyond that, something that is yet future and a potential for us. Now, Titus 3.5 makes it clear that there is no place for works in our justification. No work of righteousness can earn for us God's approbation. It doesn't gain any justification. There's nothing we can do that, ever, that can ever merit the work of Christ. This is something that is completely excluded. As Isaiah says, all of our works of righteousness are as filthy rags. So there's nothing we can do to gain phase one justification. But we have in terminology that confuses people when we look at a passage such as Philippians 2.12. Philippians 2.12 says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Well, wait a minute. I thought Titus 3.5 just said that it's not by works of righteousness. I thought Ephesians 2.8.9 said it's not of works. It is. But you see what he's talking about here isn't justification. That's the confusion that we enter into when we're defining our English theological terms like salvation differently from the way the writers of Scripture utilize those words. If salvation here, which is the word soteria, is not talking about phase one, but an ultimate fulfillment of everything and has to do with the realization of all of those potential inheritance blessings, then what Paul is saying here is not related to phase one justification, but is related to phase two sanctification, spiritual growth. That we are to be, we have, secondly, he says that salvation is worked out. And he uses an intensified form of the verb for work. He, he intensifies it with the preposition kata. So it's kata, kat ergazomai. Er, erga, ergon is the noun for work. And ergazomai is the verb for working. And it's intensified with a preposition. So we are to be intensively working out the consequences of our justification in some sense towards the goal of that ultimate deliverance. So it's interesting that in Philippians 2.12 we have the juxtaposition of this concept of work or labor with soteria and then we are to do it with fear and trembling. Now we haven't gotten there yet but the main command of Hebrews 4.1 is therefore since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. So the main command of verse 1 is let us fear. And we have this connection of these key ideas, work and salvation, soteria and fear, in Philippians 2.12. So we work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. The focus of Philippians 2.12 
is not the acquisition of an eternal destiny, gaining righteousness, gaining approval from God. But now that we are justified, we're adopted into the royal family of God, we're blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies, we have all these different things, these 40 things that God gives us at the instant of salvation, That's, uh, that is our potential, and we are to work that out and live on the basis of that so that we realize and actuate those blessings, those contingent blessings, both in time and in eternity that God has already reserved for us in grace. We're not earning them. We're developing capacity to enjoy them and capacity in order to fulfill the responsibilities that go with that. So then we go to another passage, 1 Peter 1.17. Moving from Philippians 2.12, we have the same kind of thing linked together in 1 Peter 1.17. And if you call on the Father, once again he's writing to believers, if you call on the Father, who without partiality, partiality judges according to each one's what? Work. Well, wait a minute, work doesn't have anything to do with getting into heaven. So work here is related to what takes place at the Bema Seat, what takes place at the Judgment Seat of Christ, that evaluation of our work, uh, 2 Corinthians uh, 5, uh, I think it's 2 Corinthians 5, 7 through 11, talks about the uh, Judgment Seat of Christ, the Bema Seat of Christ, and being, uh, uh, being, having our work evaluated, whether good or evil. So this is what 1 Peter 1.17 is talking about that God who will without partiality judge each one, according to each one's work. Therefore the command is, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay, that is in time during phase two, throughout the time of your stay in fear. Now this is more than respect. This is a healthy dose. It's just like when you were a kid and you knew that if you, I don't know about you, some, most of you this is probably true of, but you knew that if you got in trouble at school, you'd get in more trouble if you got in trouble at home. And so there was a healthy dose of fear there. Now, that was aggravated in my case because I went to Bel Air High School, and the assistant principal at Bel Air High School was married to my mother's best friend. And they had been roommates together in college. And so I couldn't do anything possibly wrong at school because not only did he have permission from my parents to do anything short of taking my life, when I got home, my mother would complete the process. That's what is known as fear. You know that there are serious consequences that are definitely and certainly awaiting you if there is any infraction. Therefore, it just keeps you right on the straight and narrow. And that's the concept of fear. Another passage to tie into our background for Hebrews 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 7 Verse 1. Again, it's talking to believers. Talking to those who are already justified. He says, therefore, having these promises, or could be a causal adverbial participle, because we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit. Now, what's that? I mean, this is something we all know very well. This is simply related to 1 John 1, 9. It's cleansing. It is confession of sin so that we are cleansed from all sin and all unrighteousness. So we are to, to the challenge there is to let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, 
perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Now, doesn't that sound like sanctimonious language? Perfecting does not have the idea of flawlessness. This is a word that is so very familiar to us, except it's a little different form. It's epikaleo. Now, we often look at teleao and telos and all the different uh, cognates of this root word, which means to finish, to complete, to bring to completion, to bring something to maturity. It doesn't have the idea of sinlessness or flawlessness or that concept of perfection. It has the idea of bringing something to completion. Now, at phase one justification, we also call that what? Another term that we use is positional sanctification. Positional sanctification. We're entered into unity with Christ and we're positionally identified with Him and set apart to, to God. That's what sanctification means. It is hagiosune, which means from the root uh, noun hagias, which means to be set apart to the service of God. So we are to be cleansed for the purpose of for the purpose of bringing to completion what our sanctification so this is talking about phase 2 which is spiritual growth phase 1 is positional sanctification where we're given our potential everything we need for the christian life phase 2 is where we learn the word of god under the teaching ministry of god the holy spirit and by abiding in Christ, walking by means of the Spirit, being filled by means of the Spirit, we advance step by step, day by day in our growth where we take the potential and we act, actuate it to sanctification. So we are maturing our sanctification by means of the fear of God. It's part of the motivation. It's an instrumental there, we're indicating it's part of motivation, maturing, our maturing sanctification by means of the fear of God. There's nothing wrong. Sometimes people get funny ideas, sanctimonious ideas, self-righteous ideas that that I'm not supposed to be living my Christian life because I'm afraid of punishment. Well, that's not what the Word of God says. The Word of God says there should be a healthy dose of fear of punishment. We're going to get to it in Hebrews. When we get down to Hebrews 12, whom the Lord loves, He disciplines. And that certainly is a motivation not to be disobedient or live in extended carnality because we know we're going to hit that serious divine discipline. So all of these passages that we've looked at emphasize this concept of growth and it's related to fear. Now we come to Hebrews 4.1. All of that just sets the stage, forms the background, so that we can almost read through these verses without doing a whole lot of exegesis because we've laid the groundwork so we understand the vocabulary, we understand the background, we understand the Old Testament analogy, and now we can just put it together. He starts off with a conclusion, therefore... Therefore, drawing an inference from the fact that the Old Testament Jewish Exodus believer completely failed to realize his promised rest. And they could not enter that rest, verse 19, because of unbelief. 
Therefore, because they did not enter, because of unbelief, he says, a promise remains for you. And he's talking to first century believers. He's taken the events from the Old Testament, from back there in, in the 15th century B.C., and he's brought it right up into the contemporary situation of his first century world. But the significant thing about this for us is that it's just as true for any believer in any decade all the way through the church age. And that goes back to that phrase. It's repeated three times coming out of Psalm 95.7. Today, if you will hear his voice. It brought it right into the present. It's just as true for you and I as it is for anybody at any other time in the church age. Since a promise remains of entering his rest. There is still a promise that he's holding out there for a potential for each one of us to enter this rest. It's not entering into heaven because that's already secured. It's something different from entering into heaven. Therefore, since a promised since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear. And the word there for fear is a word where we get a Greek word where we get our English word. Uh, phobia is phobeo, and it's an aorist passive subjunctive here, and it has the the passive voice means the subject receives the action of the verb, so it is let us become fearful in in a literal sense. Let us become uh, fearful. Uh, it has the idea of fear, respect, awe. Let us become fearful, lest any of you seem to have come short of it. Now, that's really the beginning of the verse in the Hebrew. It's the first word is, therefore, let us be fearful. So that's the emphasis. That's why, as I'm going through the slide here, we, we're looking at the command first and then going back to the uh, first clause in the English second. Because what the writer of Hebrews is saying, first and foremost, is let us become fearful. That's the emphasis. And it's the main idea that controls everything down to verse 10. Everything else in this section is a development of the command, this exhortation in verse 1. Look at verse 2 for a minute. Just look in your English. The next sentence begins in verse 2. It starts with a 4. A 4 tells you it's an explanation of a previous statement. Verse 3 begins with the English word 4. tells you it's an explanation of the previous verse. Uh, verse 4 begins with a 4, telling you it's an explanation of the previous verse. So 2, 3, and 4 are explaining out like a telescope. It's explaining out this, the meaning, the significance of the command to become fearful. And then verse 6, the next sentence, uh, 4 and 5 is one sentence in the original, a, quote from, uh, a couple of quotes from the Old Testament. Verse 6 says, Since therefore... It remains. So we're drawing another inference. But those two uh, inferences, that, that next inference develops out of what is said in verses 2 through 5. So in terms of the logical structure of the passage, everything hinges on understanding the first verse. He says, therefore, he says, therefore let us become afraid. Let us take this very seriously since a promise remains, and this is the Greek word katalepo, it's a present passive uh, participle, has that uh, inferential sense to it. It's an adverbial participle, meaning to leave behind, 
to forsake, to leave, to reserve something. In other words, this is still there. He's not talking about the fact that this rest is something historical that the Jews had back in that previous generation, but but you can't get there now. It is still available. And this is brought out by that last word in the the verb that I want to talk about in the last clause, uh, translated have come short. It's the Greek word hustereo. And it means to be last, to be behind, to be posterior in either place or time. Now, if you, you can miss something by being in the wrong place, or you can miss something because it's the wrong time. You can go to Hobby Airport instead of DFW, and you've missed it because you're in the wrong, you missed your flight because you're in the wrong place. Or you can get to the airport on time and then fall asleep in the waiting room, and the plane takes off, and you've missed the plane because you're late. Now what this is talking about is coming short in the sense of place. You, lest any of you come, come short. They're not missing it by time because that would mean that you know the first century Jews had a chance to enter the rest, but you don't live in the first century. I mean, excuse me, the 15th century B.C. Jews had a chance to enter the rest, uh, but you live in the first century A.D., so you missed out and you were just you were just too late in terms of time. Now it's talking about not being in the right place. In other words, not being a mature believer in order to secure the potential. So he draws this conclusion, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. Now he shifted the meaning of his rest here. And the previous chapter, rest focused on entering into the promised land. But now it's something future. It's what that entrance into the promised land was a picture of. And that is entering into the millennial kingdom. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear, fear lest any of you seem to have missed it. Lest it's possible that you might miss out on fulfilling all the promised blessings that we have for the millennial kingdom. For he says, and now he's going to explain it. For indeed the gospel, and by gospel he doesn't mean trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's simply the Greek verb, euangelizo, which means to announce good news. For indeed good news was announced to us as well as to them. We both had a message of promise. It's not the gospel in terms of how to get justified. It is simply a Greek word meaning the announcement of new Uh, the announcement of good news. For indeed, good news was announced to us as well as to them. The good news for them is there's a promised land that I'm taking you to. The good news for us is headed towards the millennial kingdom. But the word which they heard did not profit them. And this is the Greek verb ophileo, which means something that is profitable, something that is advantageous, something that would make a difference in the way they lived. They heard all this about the promised land, and it never made any difference. They saw God perform miracle after miracle after miracle. never made any difference. They continued to disbelieve. They continued to grumble. They continued to complain. They continued to rebel against Moses and his leadership. So the writer of Hebrews says, in the, building the analogy, for indeed the good news was preached to us as well as to them. So he's setting up a parallel between us, 
church-age believers, and them, the Old Testament, Exodus generation. But the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. So they didn't believe it. Well, that's the same thing he said in verse 19 of the previous chapter. They couldn't enter because of unbelief. So he's gradually developing out the thought. Then he explains it further in verse 3. He starts with the four, which is explanation. For we who have believed do enter that rest. Now you're thinking, hmm, that sounds like a past tense there. We who have believed do enter that rest. And this is where we have to deal with a little exegesis here. Uh, For we... It, it, actually, the text begins, for we, for we who enter that rest, the, for we who enter that rest, the ones who believe, for we who enter, and the word for enter is a present uh, passive indicative of ace erkami, which means to enter into. Present passive indicative of of uh, Ace Erkami, and it is preceded by a sub, uh, by a um, aorist active participle of pistuo. Now, the aorist active participle of pistuo is with a with an article, and it's when when you have believe the word believe with an article or the participle believe with an article in the Greek, it virtually functions just like a noun. The believers. So he's saying, for, for we believers enter that rest. That's how it should be translated if you're going to be, as, be literal. We believers enter that rest. But there's a meaning to the present tense that is called a futuristic or a proleptic meaning nuance to the word present tense. In other words, it's looking at the pres- using a present tense, but it has a future sense to it. So we should translate it, we believers will enter that rest. We who believe will enter that rest. And it's not talking about simply being being justified. Remember the context here. He's talking about not believing in verse 19, but that, not, that unbelief in verse 19 wasn't related to gaining eternal life. And then in verse... Two, again, he talks about not mixing faith and not mixing faith with those who heard. What's that? That's talking about post-salvation faith. So when he comes down here to verse 3, says these who, who, uh, who have believed, it's not talking about phase one justification. It's talking about believers and their post-salvation life who are operating on the faith rest drill. And those who operate on the, on the faith rest drill have such a certainty of entering the rest that he speaks of it as a present reality. That's the sense of a future, of a future nuance to a present tense. It's a future use of the present tense. So what's all that saying? That gets into some compl- complicated grammar to try to explain all that. The bottom line is he's saying we who continue to believe, we who are characterized by belief in our post-salvation life, we who are characterized by the faith rest drill and our faith rest life 
will certainly enter that rest in the future. As he has said, and now he's going to contra- contrast it with, the, with that Old Testament generation again. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So we have church age believers who are going to be able to enter the rest. And you had, in, in, by analogy, these Old Testament believers that can't enter the rest. He keeps going back and forth to this analogy. He's very repetitive here. He just wants to make sure everybody gets the point. They failed to enter the promised land and forfeited it because they didn't mix their understanding of God's Word with faith. They continued in unbelief. Don't you do it. Be fearful because you may forfeit future blessings the same way. So God said, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. That's Psalm 95.7. Although the works were finished, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. Now let's see if we can put this in a chart so everybody can visualize it. We're going to compare the Exodus generation to our present generation. The Exodus generation failed to mix faith with promises. As a result, they were not able to enter God's rest, the promised land. The present generation are those who believe, who continue trusting Christ, trusting in the faith rest drill and the post-salvation spiritual life. And those will certainly enter in to God's rest, the millennial rule. It's a very simple analogy. It's very easy to get caught up in complicated things, but it's just, when you boil it down, it's a very simple analogy. The Exodus generation failed to, to trust God to provide for them and their post-salvation life, and so they didn't get to enter the promised land. If we fail to trust God in the post-salvation spiritual life, we will forfeit rewards, responsibilities, and millennial blessing. Okay, verse 4. Verses 4 and 5 deal with two Old Testament uh, quotations. Verse 4 says, For he has spoken, indicating the completed canon of Scripture in the Old Testament, he has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. Notice now he goes back to the original prototype of rest, which is that God's cessation from labor on the seventh day of the creation week. He said God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this place, they shall not enter my rest. That's Psalm 95. So he goes back even further and builds this analogy that God has a rest that ceased from labor. The Exodus generation labored in, the, in slavery in Egypt, but they didn't get to enter rest because of unbelief. But it remains for us to enter rest if we believe. That's verse 6. Since therefore it remains that some, and the word must is in italics because it's not present in the original, since therefore it remains that some enter it. There is still the potential for present church age believers to enter 
that rest. So he shifted the meaning again to the distant analogy, which is the millennial kingdom. Since therefore it remains that some must enter, and those to whom it was first preached did not enter because of disobedience. So for the third time, we are reminded that it was disobedience synonymous with disbelief that caused their failure to realize uh, the promised rest of God. They completely forfeited it. Verse 7, again he designates a certain day, saying in David, that is the psalm, Psalm 95, 7, today, after such a long time as it has been said, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Notice how he drives the point home. He goes from verse 1 saying, let us fear, and now he reminds today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, see, what rest is this? This is back to the promised land rest. If Joshua had given them rest, he would not afterwards spoken of another day. See, if they, even if the conquest generation, which did enter the land, had realized the full potential of this rest, he wouldn't have spoken of a future time. So, when he, he in verse 8, he's saying that, that the rest of of the conquest generation, the rest, in quotation marks, of the, of the exodus generation was also a prototype or a foreshadowing of the future millennial blessing. And his conclusion is, therefore, there remains a rest for the people of God. There is still a rest, a promised rest from labor. Now, what are we doing in post-salvation spiritual life today. We're laboring. Philippians 2.12 Let us work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We are working. We are perfecting our sanctification. There is labor. This involves not labor in the sense of earning righteousness or earning God's approval, but it involves the work of Bible study, the work of learning doctrine, the work of application of doctrine. It involves Christian service. All of this is involved in that concept of work. We are laboring in phase two to advance forward in the Christian life. But there is a rest promised for us in the future, and that is our position of reigning and ruling as, in a, as kings and priests in the millennial kingdom. Verse 10. This concludes the the, the paragraph in chapter 4 before we get into the final, uh, the final section. For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his work as God did from his. Now who's that talking about? That's ta- that is talking about, the, I think it's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ who has entered his rest. That's our, our model. Remember this goes back to the fact that he is seated at the right hand of God the Father. Now the he, and verse 10, for he who has entered his rest is talking about that model of the Lord Jesus Christ. He has entered his rest. He has ceased from his work, which was done at the cross, as God did from his. So it takes us back to that pattern that we saw with the Lord Jesus Christ as our model for sanctification back in verses 10 and verses 11. So it's tying the exhortation of these verses uh, from 3, 7 down through the end of chapter 4, 
back to the main topic of the didactic section, the teaching section, which was focusing on the fact that Jesus Christ was tested in all areas as we are, and he is the one that is as, as our model, our prototype for the spiritual life, which is exactly where we head in to, head to in verses 14 through 16. So the last verse of this paragraph, 1 through 10, sets us up with the challenge of verses 11 through 16, which is going to introduce us once again to the Lord Jesus Christ as our high priest. So what's the conclusion from this? The conclusion is we have to take Christian life seriously. This isn't just about academics. It's not just about understanding the Bible. It's not just some some interesting facts. It's that there are serious consequences to what we do with what we learn. To whom much is given, much is expected. And that this is building something in our soul. And that's the only thing that goes with us after we die physically. It's what we take with us into eternity. It builds a capacity for responsibility. It builds a capacity for uh, righteousness. It builds a capacity for leadership, a capacity for wisdom that becomes the basis for our ability to rule and reign with Jesus Christ in the Millennial Kingdom. Let's bow our heads in closing prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to go through these challenging verses that present such a strong case for us that we need to uh, be extremely serious about our responsibilities as believers and what you are doing in our life and maturing us to be like Jesus Christ in preparation for our future uh, ruling destiny with him. Father, we pray that God and the Holy Spirit would drive these points home, help us to understand them, and make them clear to us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.